Hey everyone, it's Jacqueline Melanick. Welcome to Chain Reaction, a show that unpacks and dives deep into the latest trends, drama, and news with some of the biggest names in crypto, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. Today's guest is Jack Mallers, the founder and CEO of Strike, a Bitcoin-based payment network that is trying to grow cross-border payments and remittance markets. Last year, his company raised $80 million in a Series B round to grow into that space, and he's also partnered with companies like Visa and Clover. Mallers is also the CEO of Zap, a Bitcoin investment and payments company that transacts on the Lightning Network, which is a second layer on Bitcoin's blockchain that allows for off-chain transactions between parties, and I'm sure Jack will get into that for us. There's a lot to talk about here, but first, Jack, welcome, and thanks for joining us on the show today. Hello. That was a comprehensive introduction. <laughs> I appreciate that. I try. I try. That was yeah. so kind. Everything was correct. Oh, you crushed it. All right, good. 11 out of 10. We're not really no, thank you for having me. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, great. So first things first, Jack. I know from previous conversations, you said you got into Bitcoin in your late teens and now you're in your late 20s. Hope you don't mind me throwing that out there. But, you know, not many people have a decade of experience in this space. So first question, like, how did you get into all of this? And two, why are you focusing specifically on Bitcoin and payment solutions? Yeah. Okay. How did I get into Bitcoin, right? And and why? Mm -hmm. I got into Bitcoin because of my father, actually. So it's a little bit reverse of a lot of the traditional stories, which is the younger generation is trying to pitch their dad or their uncle at Thanksgiving mm -hmm. dinner. That's what I did. Yeah. It was the reverse <laughs> for me. So my family, to make it super brief, has a pretty decent history in finance. My grandfather, once upon a time, was the chairman of the Chicago Board of Trade here in Chicago. My dad spent his career in finance. And so when I was graduating high school in 2012, a lot of the Chicago finance community, so not just my family, but the broader mm -hmm. Chicago finance community was getting into Bitcoin, which was very purposeful. And I can kind of, if interested, describe and allude to a lot of the overlap between the Chicago financing and Bitcoin, but they were. Meanwhile, I was fantastically and spectacularly dropping out of college and being an idiot. <laughs> and uh, my dad, I dropped out of college. I didn't get a college credit. And my dad sat me down and said, hey, you're confusing me a little bit. On one end, uh, you can play chess very well. You have a couple state chess championships. So something's working on the thing that's attached to your neck, but you can't pass a class. And I don't know what to do with you. I'd suggest you get into this Bitcoin thing with me. Programming is kind of like chess. And I think it's probably the most asymmetric opportunity in your lifetime, both as an investment, but also just morally and principally a really mm -hmm. cool way to spend your life. And so I was like, let's go. And that was about 10 years ago. And uh, that is how I got in. So summary is a cheat code of sorts. I think I've got the best dad in the world who let me drop out of school and encouraged me into a career that I'm forever thankful and grateful for and has given me a lot of life purpose. Uh, did he, uh, is he joined in on strike with you? I mean, my dad's part of everything I do in my life. He's joined into, uh, I don't know. I heard you went to North Carolina. He went to Duke. We, it's our, <laughs> we, uh, it's our favorite basketball team. We should end the episode then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was nice getting to know you. No, we do everything together. Yeah. Uh, he's not an active part of the company or anything. He's super duper retired. He likes hanging out mm -hmm. in the sun and, uh, trading casually. But anyway, yeah, that's, uh, how I got into it. I, mm -hmm. I have a really cool and smart dad. And then focusing specifically on Bitcoin, there's so many things you could have looked at and you went to the payment solution area of everything. Why that? 
Like what was your focus there and the drive behind that? Yeah. So obviously the Bitcoin community sometimes can be at opposition with some of the other altcoins. And so we'll avoid any direct slander. But, you know, I think I didn't, I never understood the value. Um, I never understood sort of the moral imperative and the guiding principles behind a lot of these projects. And sometimes that hunch is violently realized in things like FTX and it sucks to see. But man, I have stories I can tell. My stepmom, my dad's uh, wife, sat next to Vitalik Mm -hmm. before Ethereum was launched and he sold her ETH as part of the presale. And I remember her coming home from a conference. was like, hey, this Vitalik guy sold me this thing called Ethereum. So I have stories. I've been around a super long time. And I think net all, I don't understand what these things generally solve. I consider them arbitrages on the trend, which I can break down. I think that they are generally short-lived if we think about decades and decades and centuries worth of innovation. I don't think anything is built a long-lasting impact and uh, value. So I've just stuck to Bitcoin because I think it's the best use of my human capital, Mm -hmm. (laughs) personally. Fair. And then how does Strike handle Bitcoin volatility? Like if Bitcoin is at 65,000 again, one of these days, maybe, or if it goes back to 15,000, like how does that affect the users using it? Yeah. Okay. So I think part of your question too, that I ranted too long to answer was uh, why we focus on payments. Mm -hmm. So a really interesting part about Strike is uh, we're a business involved with Bitcoin, but we don't care about its price, which is probably, if anyone listening is like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm ending this podcast. What has happened, the innovation that we've latched onto that you alluded to in the beginning, the Lightning Network, we use Bitcoin as a payments rail. So what is a payments rail? Have you ever used one? Yes, you have. Mm-hmm. A payments rail is Visa. A payments rail is Swift. A payments rail could be considered the TransferWise network. So we use Bitcoin and the Lightning Network for payments. So we're actually using Bitcoin, the instrument, to move value around the world. But our customers actually spend and receive dollars or spend and receive euros or spend and receive stable coins. We're using it as a technological innovation in the world of payments. And so for us as a company, our services are just as attractive if Bitcoin is a dollar or if Bitcoin is a million dollars. And that's a lot of the reason I started the company. You know, when you're 18 years old and you get into Bitcoin, your revenue model is buying something at $50 and then working on it and spending your career on it to make sure that it doesn't die. And then it hits $100 and you're like, wow, I've doubled my money, right? So I spent a lot of my career just making sure that Bitcoin survived and being super interested in how I could promote it, how I can instill its principles and why it's valuable to the world. But then once the Lightning Network existed and I realized I could build a business that wasn't so reliant on the price, but could more use a lot of the properties as a technological payments innovation is why I started Strike. So we don't care about the price net all. All right, there we go. And how is the Lightning Network better than payment networks that the average person uses today that you mentioned before? So just taking a step back, what is the Lightning Network, which I'll just spend two seconds Mm -hmm. on for the audience. Bitcoin is purposefully designed to be slow and I wouldn't describe it as expensive, but the cost to use it is a variable. So it could be cheap, but it could be expensive. And even when I say slow, it's variable. It could be 10 minutes. It could be 10 hours. That's very purposeful. And unless you're interested and you think your audience is, we'll just leave it at that. (laughs) But you can trust me when I say that is by design. And that design was set to achieve a lot of the properties that make it important, make it censorship resistant, make it globally available and accessible. And It is a purposeful engineering decision. What the Lightning Network does is it takes those two variables and it removes them. So 
you have the variable time it takes for a Bitcoin transaction to be final and the variable cost, like I just described. The Lightning Network solves for those. And so it makes a Bitcoin transaction both instant and virtually free. So that's a huge deal. It's a huge innovation in Bitcoin as a technology. Mm -hmm. And then when you actually relate it to payment rails, traditional payment rails, they all are very expensive. They take a long time to settle and they aren't inherently global. Those three properties make them very limiting, very costly, and very difficult to use at times. The age-old sending money home can take days and cost me 10%. There are pretty complicated reasons that we could talk about, but the Lightning Network is actually a huge innovation in solving for that because for the first time, you have a physical instrument that's digital. So I don't know if everyone's going to be watching the video here. For those on audio, I'm holding a Gatorade bottle that I'm drinking. This Gatorade bottle is a physical instrument, right? I can hold it. I can hit myself in the cheek with it and it's going to hurt. I cannot throw this Gatorade bottle to Nigeria, for example. I'm not nearly strong enough. The physics and the (laughs) dynamics of the world don't allow this Gatorade bottle and this piece of plastic to travel that far. Bitcoin also is a physical instrument, just like this Gatorade bottle. And I actually can throw Bitcoin from here to Nigeria now with the Lightning Network instantly and for free. And so when you think of it relative like that, it is the first physical instrument in the history of humanity that could travel at the speed of light anywhere in the world. And that is the innovation is the Visa Network actually can't achieve that. The SWIFT Network actually can't achieve that. The Western Union Network actually can't achieve that. And then the innovation that we developed as a business is, well, why is nobody using it? It's because actually making use of that technology is very difficult. It'd be much easier if someone used it under the hood, but let me just connect my Chase account to it. And that's what we've made. So I can get your value out of your Chase account into Nigeria instantly and far cheaper than anybody else. And it's because I'm using the technology I just described under the hood instead of the SWIFT network or the Visa network. Mm -hmm. What are the odds big players like Visa or banks will get into this soon? And does that potential competition worry you? No, we encourage it. And we actually are working with some big players. Okay. (laughs) So a lot of the thesis is that Bitcoin and and the Lightning Network, it's what we describe as an open network. It means it's open for all entrants. Anybody can join it. And so it's not a winner-take-all or winner-take-most market, Mm -hmm. right? It's going to have many, many winners. You should think of it like the internet. The one analogy I like to draw is very similar to Google. Would Google be fearful of other websites coming on the web? They better not, because if they were the only website on the internet, indexing the web would be worth nothing. Google's value is proxied to the value and the depth of the internet. And so we love when more people come onto the Lightning Network because it gives our business and our services more value. If Visa joined it, that would be 80 million merchants that we can now interoperate with. And so we think Lightning is more competitive with like a Swift or a Visa, and we consider ourselves a constituent on the network. And there's going to be a lot of value for all of us to share. So we encourage competition. We don't think of it as competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you think about payment rails, often people, me included, I think about like Venmo, Cash App, et cetera. I pay my friend for dinner or someone's paying the rent bill through it. But when you're talking about it, I feel like there's a bigger focal point around cross-border payments between you in Chicago mm-hmm. and me in New York. That's where I am or something like that. Mm-hmm. How do you think of strike in that way? And then also in a more global sense, like what are you driving there to make this more a cross-border opportunity? Yeah. So The real value is in that ability to physically settle a payment. Mm -hmm. Like I was alluding to with the jokingly, but very seriously, the Gatorade bottle. When you make a Venmo payment, PayPal is actually just updating their database. They hold your dollars and they hold my dollars and they're just tally marking 
who owns more and who owns less every time we hit send on that application. When I want to send a US dollar to Nigeria where the recipient wants to receive a Naira, that's very complicated. That actually involves, Mm -hmm. through the SWIFT system, at two central banks that govern and issue their own nation-state currency, and then a bunch of intermediary banks along the route to actually physically settle cross-currency transactions. And so there's a lot more to unpack there. There's a lot more intermediaries. There's a lot more expense. There's a lot more timely delays, and there's a lot more cost for all parties. And so the technology is way more valuable and impactful from day one in a situation like that. I do actually believe, I mean, we all know Cash App has integrated the Lightning Network. I think that there's a lot of value in domestic payments. And I think that there's a broader vision that the Lightning Network can act as the global value transfer protocol for the world. It's how all of us interoperate. What if you wanted to pay your friend on Cash App and you're on Venmo? How do those two apps actually interoperate and achieve value transfer amongst each other. I do think that Lightning will serve as the single value transfer protocol for planet Earth. But I think as we evolve in this very early innings of this journey, the lowest hanging fruit is how do you get physical value across planet Earth? And that's why we start there and focus there. Mm -hmm. And there's like a lot of this new infrastructure or young payment infrastructures incorporating Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. But like to keep with the theme of Bitcoin, these types of services are making Bitcoin more accessible and arguably understandable. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you agree with that, but what do you think is needed to bring it to that next step so that people are comfortable using this and it is truly accessible? Yeah, I think, you know, at Strike, we generally hold the opinion that at scale, people don't want to spend a deflationary asset. What does that mean? You don't want to spend something that generally goes up in price. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, um, mm-hmm. so, you know, anyone that's ever spent Bitcoin in their life, like myself, back in 2013, I bought a painting for a lot of Bitcoin and I really wish I didn't. <laughs> um, you usually regret it. So we actually think that people that own Bitcoin and invest in Bitcoin generally tend to hold it and there isn't a demand Mm -hmm. to actually use it as a currency. We think that we can use the technology under the hood to service for better use cases with currencies that people use today. So I think that we just need to solve consumer demand, which is someone's in the United States and they want to get money to the Philippines. And we could say, I could do it faster, cheaper, and way better than anyone else in the world. And that's how we get more people to use it, I think. And uh, whether they actually know they're using Bitcoin, the technology under the hood is totally irrelevant to us. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's about solving consumer needs. Bitcoin solves a consumer need because it's an investable asset that's very accessible and it averages 100% year-over-year growth in price against the dollar. And that's a consumer need that's solved and it's very accessible and very mainstream. And I think in what you mean by day-to-day life and remittances and in payments, I think it's about meeting consumers where they are and solving a problem for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes into something that you were involved in in the past and probably still are. You talked about bringing Bitcoin to El Salvador Mm -hmm. through payment rails like Strike and other payment apps. Like, How is that working out? I think it was about a year, year and a half ago when this kind of started. And how has like the mission changed since then? Yeah, no, I think it's gone tremendously well, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, third world countries, emerging markets, they have a very strenuous relationship with the U.S. dollar and with entities like the IMF and the World Bank. They live in a perpetual cycle of debt and credit with these organizations, and they ultimately their lifeline, you know, currency and money and the ability to transact and preserve wealth is at the core nucleus of life (laughs) and society. And theirs is a relationship with the Federal Reserve in the United States. And so El Salvador was interested 
in this new monetary system. If you think of the Federal Reserve as the central bank for the United States, you can think of Bitcoin as like the central bank for the internet or the central bank for the world. Here it is, is a different monetary policy with a different instrument that has a relationship with energy as opposed to a nation state. So the rules aren't going to change because the U.S. economy had something happen or because employment rates are changing here in the United States of America, which then has a drastic impact on emerging markets and markets like El Salvador. Is here you have a monetary instrument and a monetary policy that has no relationship with any actual nation state or no political agenda. It has a relationship with energy. The rules can never change. It's globally accessible. It's a deflationary instrument. Think about how many deflationary instruments someone in El Salvador has access to. Do they buy Apple stock? Do they have Miami Beach real estate? What investment opportunities do they have? So here you have an extremely accessible deflationary instrument that you could think of like property. Like you could buy a dollar of this thing. The rules aren't going to change on you. And it doesn't have a relationship with a nation state, with employment rates, with politics. And so emerging markets that have been in severe debt since World War II that has drastically crushed their life, is it's sad. And they just were like, hey, this is interesting. This is cool. We're not destroying our relationship with the dollar. But boy, a relationship with this thing seems really worth our time. And I think that's super moral and principled, and I think it's interesting, and I think it's healthy, and I think it's going well because that's a you know if you if you zoom out and like wow World War II and the evolution of the dollar that's a big project that's a, you know people ask like a year later did it work come on give me a break this is not a homework assignment that is due in 365 days mm-hmm. and so I think it's going super well everything that the country cares about like tourism. Um, like GDP growth, all of those things are better than they've ever been ever, which it's a sign of life. It's a sign of energy. It's a sign of optimism, of hope, which I think Bitcoin and a relationship with a monetary instrument like it represents. And so I think it's going really, really well. I'm proud of the effort generally, and I'm proud of the role we played. But we as a business have no like commercial relationship, and mm-hmm. our success is not reliant on El Salvador as a country. So yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, definitely. And then keeping with the theme of Bitcoin, I feel like that's what this whole episode's kind of about. Where do you think the Bitcoin ecosystem is headed in the short term and long term? Like short term, let's say 2023, what are you thinking is going to happen within the ecosystem? And then long term, let's say five, 10 years. Yeah, I think 2023, the Lightning Network has continued to grow despite the price decline. That, by definition, is decorrelation. That means that those things are not directly mapped one-to-one, that the Mm -hmm. Lightning Network's growth and value is not implied by Bitcoin's price. I'll say that again. The Lightning Network's value is not implied by the price of the asset. That's a huge deal. And when I started the business three years ago, that was what I would tout on podcasts and on TV. And it wasn't net believed. Now that's a fact. And so I think we'll start to continue to see Bitcoin be used with utility in aspects of payments and introducing new use cases, like Visa can't make a micropayment. There's a swipe fee. So you can't actually make a 10 cent Visa payment. It's physically impossible. So I think we'll introduce new use cases. You'll start to continue to see Bitcoin used for utility as an infrastructure play with the Lightning Network. So that'll continue to grow. And then as far as Bitcoin as an asset, you know, this is the first recession and macroeconomic turmoil that Bitcoin has lived through. Mind you, Bitcoin was birthed after 2008 financial crisis, almost as a reaction to it. The reason that that's important, in 2008, everything crashed against the dollar after the resurgence of the dollar. So the Federal Reserve 
they raise interest rates, what they're doing is they're strengthening the dollar, right? They're artificially strengthening the dollar. And that means everything crashes against it. We're experiencing that now. And that happened back in 2008, 2009. I only give this context because you know what else fell in 2009? Gold, Mm. right? Which everyone is like, that's a safe haven. Gold (laughs) is an inflation hedge. It wasn't in 2009. You cannot run from the Fed. If the Fed is going to go from zero interest rates to two, three, four, five percent, then your asset is going to go down. That's a cash crunch. That's a liquidity crunch. That's how markets work. However, What was super fascinating is then gold actually rallied to new highs in 2010. And you know what else did? Soybeans. Anything that didn't have a direct relationship with interest rates, anything that had a relative supply cap, a relative supply cap. So something that can't be artificially produced to match the rate of inflation. It performed really, really well, but it took until 2010. And so if we now meet today, Bitcoin is a commodity-like instrument. It doesn't have a relative supply cap. That used to be a term because nothing has a fixed supply cap. Of course not. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is the first instrument ever that actually has a fixed supply cap. So Bitcoin's supply cap is fixed. I bucket it like a soybean, like gold, except way more explosive to the upside because it's actually fixed and it's globally accessible and it's easy to obtain and purchase. So if we are experiencing what we did in 2022, Mm -hmm. and it is now 2023, I would draw that similar to 2009 after 2008. And I think our version of 2010 will be the latter half of this year in 2024. So sorry, super long. Did that any of that make sense? By the way, I feel like I'm talking at you too much. But (laughs) of course, it made sense. (laughs) I do think that Bitcoin is a superior, explosive on steroids version of gold, for obvious reasons. And of course, it had to crash with this macroeconomic environment. It's the first time it's ever been through this. I understand why people were generally confused and questioning its value as an inflation hedge. It's not how inflation hedges work, by the way. But if you just look at history, I think it's going to be really interesting to see instruments that have a relative supply cap that don't have a direct relationship with interest rates. I think Q4 2023 and all through 24, you're going to see a lot of these things make new highs. Agriculture, commodities, gold, and I think Bitcoin. I'm really excited to see what it does in that environment. It should be really explosive. And mm-hmm. So we'll see. Those are price predictions? <laughs> yes. I think Sold. it'll be much higher than today. How about that? Okay. All right. We'll see. Uh, and then focusing on strike, Jack, what's the future for that for the company, how do you see it expanding and evolving over time? Like, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, so we have partnerships with Clover and NCR and Visa, and we have our experience in El Salvador, and we have markets open like the Philippines and Nigeria and Ghana. We've seen a pretty drastic upward trend in demand for our services, both Bitcoin, the asset, and Bitcoin as a payments network globally. That means cross-currency payments. That means the global South, our ability to serve a deflationary instrument to people that typically don't have access to these type of savings vehicles and our ability to improve on cross-currency payments, especially in lower served markets, not US to EU, for example, that's a generally pretty efficient market, but US to Nigeria is not. We've seen a ton of demand and natural organic growth there. And so we're going to really rapidly continue to invest in those products and those services. And I think it is on the short term where you'll see the Lightning Network and companies like ours make the biggest impact and the biggest splashes. Great. Looking forward to seeing that transpire. My last question for you, Jack, is Mm -hmm. what has been the biggest revelation for you as a founder building in this space and who's been in 
you know, Bitcoin for about 10 years? Oh my gosh. Those are almost two separate questions. What I've learned <laughs> in, in the last 10 years. I mean, I was 18 years old, right? And I'm, I'm 28 yeah. in many ways. I still consider myself a kid. I mean, I don't know. I grew up with this industry. So I've experienced what everyone goes through going from 18 to 28 years old. I think being a founder is, uh, man, one of the most interesting experiences. I encourage everyone to try and go through it and experience it, even at any scale, um, even if it's founding you know, a, a new dinner recipe that, okay. that you're going to iterate your way <laughs> yeah. cooking through. Yeah. I, I encourage the experience of creating something real. Mm-hmm. It's an immense challenge. So I don't know. I'm not even sure I answered your question. I, I've learned so much. It's an impossibility for me to like articulate it in All right, in we stumped you on that one. <laughs> to be candid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a journey and a half. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jack, for taking the time to come on the show today. It was great having you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. We'll be back every other week with interviews with top players in the crypto ecosystem. Catch us on Thursdays for interviews with experts in the Web3 space. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and the stories we talked about can be found in our show notes and be sure to follow us at chain underscore reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself and produced by Yashad Kulkarni and Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. See you next time.